Hello and welcome to Maiden Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Jonathan Anomaly. He's the director of the Centre for Philosophy, Politics and Economics in Quito, Ecuador, and the author most recently of a book called Creating Future People, The Ethics of Genetic Enhancement. Um, we spoke about that, the ethics of genetic enhancement. Uh, Jonathan is a cautiously welcomes um, some of the new technologies coming on the market, which will allow people to select for certain traits in their children. Um, we spoke about what traits people might want to select for, the 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 um, upsides of doing so, the enormous downsides potentially of doing so, and the fact that this technology is coming whether or not we want it to and we have to try and wrap our heads around the ethics of it in the extended version we also spoke about the role of religion and decision making in relation to these technologies and whether or not transhumanism is really a coherent ideology as always you can find uh, the extended version of this episode plus bonus episodes and the um, mmm chat community at my substack louiseperry.substack.com enjoy Um, Jonathan, I'm sorry to open with this because you probably get this question all the time, but I have wanted to ask you desperately, is Anomaly your real name? It is. And it's because I changed it when I was a student at Berkeley, uh, I guess I was about 20 years old. And, um, it's partly because my former last name was a bit of an Ellis Island name, as we call it here in the U S. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It was partly playful. I was also reading Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions at the time, taking a philosophy of science class, and the word anomaly came up quite a bit. And I thought about both the word and the connotations. A, nomos, meaning something like without name, without regularity. I didn't think at the time I'd become doctor anomaly, professor anomaly, this sort of thing. So yeah, the students think it's a joke. Everyone thinks it's a pseudonym. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> it is your legal name it's a, I mean it's a fabulous name for someone well, interested you. in the philosophy of science so. um so your uh latest book is on um genetic enhancement and the ethics of it um it is it, it is generally a subject that alarms people um the idea of um even just choosing embryos to implant based on their genetic profiles, let alone changing the genetics of people um, already yeah. already alive. Um, why do you think it is that people find it so distressing as an idea? Well, I think there are good reasons and bad reasons. So a bad reason would be easily debunked, and it's called the naturalistic fallacy, the idea that where we are now is somehow the best that we could possibly be. So for example, either an interpretation of Christianity or of Darwinism, whereby you know only the best traits tend to proliferate in the long run, right? The ones that make us healthiest, wisest, smartest, you know, that sort of thing. And that's clearly false. On a Darwinian worldview, that can't be the case. Traits that tend to leave more copies of themselves are the traits that, that proliferate by definition. That, that's what natural selection is. And that includes traits toward, you know, extreme aggression. Psychopathy is probably adaptive in some circumstances, big anonymous societies, not small tribes where monitoring costs are, are lower. Um, nevertheless, I think there are good reasons to worry about it. And some of those reasons 
have to do with the fact that these are new technologies, um, new technologies in specific for embryo selection or gene editing, which I don't talk much about in the book. And I think we have a kind of natural heuristic and here nature is good, not, not bad. What nature has given us is a kind of fear toward, you know, radical new technologies, just like radical new kinds of foods we might eat, right? If you just came across a new animal, you wouldn't say, you know, should we cook it or not cook it? Who knows? Let's just try it. No, you'd probably go toward a more conservative approach. You know, you'd cook it if you hunted it at all. The same thing goes for plants. You know, we, we're sort of um, conditioned to think correctly that some plants are likely to be poisonous or unhealthy. And so we have a kind of natural response whereby we say, well, hold on, let's, let's slow down. Let's figure out whether this, are, this is safe and proceed accordingly. Now, you mentioned changing genes, and I guess before we get into some of the details of genetic enhancement, as I mentioned before, um, what's not on the table right now is gene editing. And I actually think it's a long ways away. Um, I could be wrong about that, but the reason is there are a few reasons. One, we don't know enough about what specific genes do and how they interact with all other genes to comfortably edit other than, say, monogenic diseases like Tay-Sachs, where there's just a single genetic variant, we know exactly what it does. However, even there, even if we knew exactly what all these genes do, which we don't in many cases, you still wouldn't want to use CRISPR-Cas9 or any of its associated systems yet because you get off-target mutations, as they're called. So in many cases, you edit one genetic variant and somewhere down the line, you get accidental edits to others. Now, I think probably in the long run, we'll be able to have a system that can avoid some of those downstream mutations and probably we'll know a lot more. I'm sure we'll know a lot more about what specific genes do and how they interact. But right now, what's really on the table is embryo selection for complex traits, which we can talk more about if you like. So we're talking about a spectrum of interventions here with CRISPR being at the most extreme and currently mostly theoretical end. And then the more immediate thing is, I mean, to some extent, we, we are already able to do this with um, IVF selecting for, for instance, male or female embryos or such, um, testing for downs or things like that, which we can already do. We're talking about uh, a little bit further along that process would be polygenic screening. So maybe we'll start by explaining that because that's the thing that's actually on, on the horizon right now. Yeah, and I suppose I'll actually um, start a little bit before that, which is with mate selection. I would still say for now and the foreseeable future, mate selection is far more important in, you might say, stacking the genetic deck or, yeah, the genetic deck of cards, if you want to use a poker metaphor. And then, you know, what selection is going to do is, you know, you, you I hate to say it this way, but throw away some of the cards. This, this has to happen, of course, with when you use IVF to begin with, you generate more embryos than you need um, because some simply aren't going to implant. And so some are going to have Down syndrome, some are going to have other disorders, and some aren't. And so you already have to select among, let's, let's call them the cards, which one you want to keep. Gene editing would be like changing the suit of cards or changing whether it's an ace or, or a king. Um, we can't really do that safely now, but we can easily select, select from among the cards which ones we want to keep and therefore which hand we play. And I'll push this metaphor partly because, well, at least my book is about and the way I think is sort of like an economist. And that is to say that the traits you want your kids to have are in part a function of the traits 
that you expect everyone else to have. Um, for example, if you had above level normal, uh, yeah, above normal levels of altruism, right? And everyone else had lower levels, you might think, um, well, I, I'm setting my kid up to be nice, but also potentially to be a sucker, right? To exhibit pathological altruism. And as you know, in, in life and in evolutionary biology, in a kind of repeat prisoner's dilemma, what you don't want to do is be an unconditional sucker and cooperate when no one else does. So anyway, going back to the, to the original point, you can, you can think of this, this analogy as, as a kind of poker game. And embryo selection is just di discarding some cards and keeping others. That's going to sound terrible to, to a lot of your listeners, potentially, but everyone's been doing this who does IVF for the last 40 years anyway. We do this at the level of mate selection. And yes, I'm sure it does feel bad to be rejected on the mating market, to use that metaphor. Um, but it happens. It, it, it's something that we do anyway. I'll push the analogy a little further and into the biology. You probably know this, but when you get pregnant, when let's say a traditional man and woman, you know, have sex and the woman gets pregnant in quite a few cases, I believe the number is 70 to 80%, the body discards the embryo before it's even recognized as a viable, as a viable fetus. And that's probably for the same reason that we discard embryos during IVF, namely the body detects that there's either an abnormal number of chromosomes, which is basically Down syndrome, or detects some other genetic abnormality, and it discards it. So something like 80% of all abortions are spontaneous abortions by the body before, before there's even a detection that you're pregnant. And basically, IVF is just doing the same thing, but it's doing it in a lab where we're able to test for Downs so that you can do it before you have the embryo implanted. And then many pregnant women test for Downs and will abort, including many Christians will abort a Downs fetus, which as you, you probably would agree, I think it's a lot worse to abort at week six or eight than it is to just discard an embryo from a Petri dish. Which is why we have now countries which have had this available for, for a while now are having basically no Downs babies born at all that's exactly um, right yeah I, I, and in fact I'm guessing that basically the only um the only Downs babies still being born in countries where the the early screening is available are probably babies born to Catholic families or, or families who have some kind of very strong religious or ethical objection to to, to the screening or to the abortion um so I think that's um, right yeah and and moreover to push this in Jewish families especially Orthodox Jewish families which are not necessarily known for their pro-tech attitudes, they essentially don't have Tay-Sachs children anymore, which is one of the worst disorders that's ever afflicted human beings. It's a protein folding disease, which guarantees either you're going to have a miscarriage or the child will be born and live a very short life of writhing pain where every possible deformation will occur within a few months or a few years, and then they'll die an excruciating death. That disease doesn't exist anymore because people are screening their partners for, for, for uh, Tay-Sachs. Or if they're using IVF, they screen it out at an early stage. So that's right. So is Tay-Sachs recessive? I believe so. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, okay. So. so people can screen partners so they wouldn't other. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. That's right. And it's, and it's, it's um, concentrated like so many genetic disorders are within ethnic groups. So for whatever reason, 
Ashkenazi Jews, and it's Ashkenazis more than other Jews, get it. And the reason is for is because of a genetic bottleneck. So as you probably know, Ashkenazi Jews are the descendant of original Mediterranean Jews that had gone through Spain, Portugal, had lived there and either been thrown out or had chosen to migrate for better pastures to the north. And as they did, this was a very small community. There's more inbreeding within Ashkenazis. And, you know, this is something that I think is widely known. And even, even if it's not known, it's implicitly understood by many people. Ashkenazi Jews have the highest IQ in the world, and it's not even close. And this is almost certainly genetic because they have a higher, higher IQ than Sephardic Jews. This, this happened very quickly because of a genetic bottleneck. Um, it's a case in which inbreeding can be sort of good and sort of bad. On the one hand, you're breeding among a higher IQ population and a population that's systematically selected under cultural evolution because Christians had banned money lending, right? Ashkenazi Jews were relegated to doing that and other high cognitive demanding occupations. And those who couldn't cut it essentially died. And after 1,000, 1,200 years, they had both a higher IQ and a higher propensity to a variety of genetic disorders, including Tay-Sachs. So, yes, yeah, so I, 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 can, I can see the logic of saying, look, we already have basically all sorts of rigorous ways in which we select who gets to be born. Um, what we're doing with polygenic screening is just pushing that a little bit earlier into the process or, or putting it or making it happen in, in vitro rather than um, in the uterus or fallopian tubes or whatever. Um, the difference, of course, we, we might say is while the body might choose to spontaneously abort, um, say, a Down's embryo, is there not something crucially different about us deciding as, as, as people or even deciding in law how, you know, to, to do this, to do this artificially, essentially, we, we would be, we would be, it's a terrible word, but we would be breeding people <laughs> yeah in a way in a way that we 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 wouldn't yes that's that's the crucial moral distinction would you say maiden mother matriarch is brought to you by keeper the world's most advanced matchmaking solution now, many of you will know that I'm normally extremely suspicious of dating apps like Tinder and Bumble, which tend to produce repeat customers who must endure endless, miserable hookups and short-term relationships without ever finding a spouse. Well, Keeper is a completely different kind of service. Its algorithm prioritizes immediate attraction, but also, crucially, long-term compatibility, because forever is the goal. Everyone in the Keeper matchmaking pool is there because they want to find a spouse. Using psychometric tests like Big Five, IQ and masculine feminine polarity, Keeper can accurately predict who you're going to have the strongest chemistry with. The platform only gives you a match if you are an exact fit psychometrically and if the match offers everything that you've told Keeper you're looking for in a partner. It won't waste your time with only good enough matches like other dating apps and matchmaking services will. So, Find your keeper at keeper.ai. That's K-E-E-P-E-R dot A-I.
Yeah. So it's intentional selection versus, you know, natural selection is a very misleading term. So as you probably know, you know, Smith, Adam Smith, 1776, the year of the American Revolution, publishes The Wealth of Nations. And he uses this, this phrase, the invisible hand, but he uses it to refer to a process that has no intention behind it at all. It's an emergent order, as he stresses throughout the book. The idea is, if each of us is trading for our own reasons, I just want a good bargain. I want cheap beer that tastes good. You want, you know, a, a loaf of bread that, that's reasonably healthy. And when we're free to own our labor and other process, other products and we exchange, it's as if an invisible hand is distributing goods in a socially beneficial way. Darwin chose the phrase and discussed this very intentionally of natural selection and also sexual selection, where natural selection involves no mind at all. In fact, what's happening is an emergent order. People arise, traits arise and stabilize in response to war, disease, famine, all of these things that occur um, through no intentional choice, but just happen to happen. And so the genetic endowments that have an immune system that just happens to be resistant to polio or the Black Plague or whatever the case is, those are genes that find their way into future bodies. There's no intention behind the process. So even when we say, you know, natural versus artificial, um, you know, we use these weird terms of natural selection, which again is a metaphor for really no selection at all, a totally blind, both blind in the sense of metaphysically blind and morally blind process, right? Natural selection rewards rape and it rewards murder, not only in humans, but just look at our close cousins, the chimpanzees. What do male chimpanzees do when they find a female with a bunch of children and no men around? Well, they immediately kill the children and they rape the female, and natural selection says, good job, right? This is a set of behaviors that's going to result in more children. It does the same thing to people, which is why mass rapes after war is basically a human universal. It's what all tribes have done. It's right there in the Bible. Even God says to the Jews, you should do this, right? Um, you know, single out the men, kill them, take the women for yourselves. That's the Old Testament, of course, not the New Testament. So all that's going on here is, I guess, to some small extent, replacing natural selection, which is really no selection at all, with a bit of artificial selection. And I guess I should really briefly define, since I didn't do so, polygenic screening. So you mentioned that, I mentioned the, the deck of cards analogy, but let me get more into the science really briefly. So for about 10 or 15 years now, starting with Great Britain, but there, there are many now. We have these things called genome-wide association studies. And what happens is you get something like the UK Biobank, the Japan Biobank. You collect genetic data on hundreds of thousands of people. You just genotype people and see what traits they have. It could be simple traits like height, which turn out actually to be pretty polygenic. They involve hundreds or thousands of small genetic variants, each of which adds a little bit to more or less height. You can do the same for propensity to breast cancer, um, to coronary artery disease, or indeed to things like intelligence. And what you do then is with a large enough sample and with good enough testing, which doesn't always happen, the IQ test in the, in the UK Biobank, for example, isn't very good. But what you, what you can do is correlate these small genetic variants that add up to these traits with sets of chromosomes, with hundreds of thousands of people who have those traits. And you can figure out the extent to which 
um, we can basically infer that it's these sets of genes that are causing these traits. You don't even need a very good causal story, though, exactly how that's happening. All you need is after enough correlations, um, you end up getting a story whereby you can select in favor or against these traits. You might remember from freshman philosophy, uh, you know, in England, and, and we had the same David Hume's famous paradox of causation. You know, he says, look, all, all I see is sets of correlations. I've never seen a thing called a cause in the universe, right? All I see is sort of the billiard stick hitting the ball. And then after that, the ball moves and hits another ball. You know, it's just correlations all the way down. How do we ever infer causation? Well, we do. And in most cases, um, we're right to do so after enough correlations. So anyway, what ends up happening is you get these huge sets of correlations and you can assign different embryos polygenic scores based on those correlations, predicting the extent to which um, or the probability with which a particular embryo will be disposed to develop a particular trait. And some are incredibly accurate, like height. Others are less accurate. Some of the disease traits, you might be able to reduce the risk of diabetes type 1 by 40% or 60%, but not by 100%. Why? Simply not because, well, it's simply because not all of the genes associated with those traits are known, and also because the environment still matters. Things aren't genetic all the way down. Environments do, do play some role. So that's polygenic screening. You assign polygenic scores to the various embryos you have. Not all of them were going to survive into adulthood anyway. You know, people are going to select against Downs or Tay-Sachs, for example. And this is just a way of refining the selection process. And to put all the points together, you know, these are whole genomes. These are genomes sculpted by evolution through natural selection, millions of years. It's exactly like the kinds of babies you might have had. All it's doing is sort of laying out a set of potential kids and allowing you to pick among those which one you're going to select. A very awesome task. I, I agree. But the thing is, that was already happening. It was just happening in a very blind way before. And the power of the screening process is presumably going to depend as well on how many embryos you're choosing from. So if you're choosing from five versus choosing from 500, the, the, the power you can wield is going to um, change quite a lot. So, so one of the things that you grapple with in the book is um, the the ethical, the political implications of the fact that at least initially we're not expecting everyone to make use of this technology. Some people are, maybe a handful of people are already making use of it. Possibly very soon, this is going to be become more common among people who have the resources to access it. But there's always going to be a degree of um, inequality of access how do you think how do you think we should think about that should that should that um put us off the idea of using it at all or do you think there's a way of managing that inequality yeah good question so first of all um there already is quite a bit of genetic inequality in the mating market there's a sort of mating and as you as you know um you know doctors marry lawyers and genders marry plumbers nothing wrong with any of those categories of people um, but that's a fact. And the more we've stressed female education um, and female ownership of property, which, of course, began, you know, in your country, made its way into the U.S. and from there to the world. Um, 
what you get is more assortative mating. And the number one trait along which people assortatively mate is intelligence. Um, we can measure that. It's pretty strong as an effect. I think it's like 0.4. I could be wrong. I think it's right around there. And so even in the absence of the genetic technologies, we're already getting increased genetic inequality across generations because of new mating patterns that only arise with a kind of industrial society. Um, but what this is going to do is initially potentially exacerbate those inequalities. I actually think the technology which is available now and is going to come online in, in a really powerful way in the next two to five years I think that's going to initially have some effect, but very few people are going to use it because as usual, it will be more expensive and less efficacious than it will be in, let's say, 10 to 20 years. So it's going to be both more costly again, but also more useless. And so what's going to happen is the usual story of the rich basically subsidizing a product that isn't that well developed yet so that future poor people, that's not their intention, but the result is future poor people actually have a better quality uh, product at lower price. Nevertheless, in the interim, there will be more genetic inequalities. And even over the long run, there probably will be. There are a few ways that governments might address it. So China just made universal IVF free. Um, and they're doing this to solve the population problem. I think countries like Israel, well, I think Israel does too. Um, Singapore, there are other countries that I'm sure will follow suit. And when this happens, it's going to make it a lot cheaper for everyone to do polygenic risk screening. Now, one problem with that, especially for some of your listeners, I, I bet, is that that means people who don't have to use IVF will probably start doing it electively simply because it's, it's free if the government makes it that way or insurance companies or Google, which also does this, right? Google encourages their employees to freeze their eggs in, in the idea that later they'll use IVF, especially if they sell their soul to Google for 20 years, you know, young women. And that makes it easier for Google to say, hey, just chill out. Don't even look for a guy. Don't worry about it. And then at 40, you know, maybe you'll use a sperm donor or find a guy. Um, I'm putting this in a way that is deliberately on the side of your audience. I know. Um, <laughs> That's roughly my analysis true. as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it's true. I think it's... it's purely self-interested reason they're doing this. And I do think, and I worry, I share, I know your worry, that this is going to alter social norms in very bad ways. Um, so I actually think that this technology needs to be paired with a rethinking of what political societies look like and how we want to live together, how we want to reproduce. Should we be encouraging people to couple up, for example? And I think the answer is clearly yes. Um, and this would be sort of something on the side, but to tie this together back to your original question, there are different ways of achieving equality of access to this. One is through the aforementioned invisible hand, things get cheaper and better as markets advance. Another is through government or insurance subsidies. But as that happens, you're going to get a, a set of norms whereby people are probably pressured into doing IVF who wouldn't otherwise have done that. That may be a situation where it's in some sense bad for each, but good for all or vice versa, depending on how people respond to these incentives. It could have an overall good result in the sense that artificial selection might in principle result in fewer diseases, 
smarter, nicer humans, whatever, right? Name the traits that you care about. Um, but at the expense of healthy relationships, or it could go the other way. Because it, it, it produces unhealthy relationships, we actually get a worse outcome. Maybe we get a crashing birth rate even more because, you know, people aren't marrying for love or staying together for love. They're doing it to produce a baby or something like this. I think all of these are on the table, which is why in my book, I'm not sort of expressing some kind of, you know, un, unmitigated optimism toward this. I actually do support this technology to some extent with lots of reservations. Um, but I'm under no illusions um, that, for example, democracy just like produces invisible hand outcomes in the good sense of the word, right? Um, that's a kind of emergent order. And I'm under no illusions that widespread access to this stuff in the absence of changes in other social norms that probably matter more will produce a good outcome either. Uh, and the thing that really struck me reading your book another writing on this is that um this is coming whether or not we want it to because even if the west were to put serious limits on the use of this technology and research into it um china isn't going to do so so it's it's coming it's coming imminently and it might be that ethical objections to it um might act as a bit of a sea anchor and slow down its adoption um i mean do you see any scenario where this doesn't definitely come on the market within our lifetimes is there any way in which it might be restricted or might not work as well as we think it will or or is this a certainty do you think so it's a certainty for lots of reasons one the technology is there two i know of companies that are engaging in it now and i think that there are stealth people already doing it now so th this is happening and it will happen at an accelerating pace over the next five years like it or not Moreover, laws against these things are not going to work. And here's why. Um, if you want to do polygenic screening, basically all you do is take traditional, you know, you do the traditional IVF and you get your embryo sequenced, which again has already been happening at a low resolution to screen out for downs and things like this. Um, all you get is like a slightly higher resolution sequencing. And let's say you live in Taiwan and a company in Israel or England wants to be able to give you genetic information or interpret it for you so that you can screen out, the laws are going to have a really hard time preventing those people from giving you that information. Not only are you legally entitled to that information in many countries, let's say you weren't, it's just very easy to transfer information. And you can say that you're transferring it for various purposes, um, whether or not those purposes are the reasons, the motives behind parents making those choices. Um, in the law, as you know, and for good reason, it's very hard to try someone for an intention. Um, now, in the case of murder, intention does matter. And we try to put together, you know, sets of evidence like, did this person have a motivation to do this or did they do it by accident? You know, is it mere manslaughter? Um, you can sometimes tease out motivations, but it's especially hard to do that when you're just given a bunch of data. And when a company gives you that data, why did you choose this or that embryo? It's going to be very hard for a government to enforce laws against having an intention to select for one reason or another. Moreover, there's big demand for it among the wealthy already and among the, the sort of well-connected in Silicon Valley. And in fact, it turns out the preferences are changing very fast. Science Magazine 
just published a survey uh, two or three months ago now asking Americans whether or not they support the following three things. One is tutoring to boost their kids' chances of going to an elite university. Um, by the way, I don't, having taught at those elite universities, I don't recommend sending your kids there. They will be morally corrupted. Um, <laughs> but read, read Mencius Moldbug, read, read, read about the cathedral and, and how it works. Um, it's more of a, a way of indoctrinating future elites these days than it is of, of educating them. But anyway, um, yeah, it turns out like you can contrast uh, tutoring, spending money on tutoring to get your kids into an elite university versus embryo selection for the same underlying trait or gene editing. And I can tell you the data is pretty clear. Tutoring does not work. It barely budges your SAT score for reasons that we, I think, understand, which is, you know, intelligence is mostly a genetic phenomenon, at least general intelligence. But something like 80% said they would use tutoring to boost their kids' cognitive ability and their chance to get into an elite school. And about 50% said they would use embryo selection for it. And 40% would gene edit their children to do this if it were known to be safe. Now, that's a counterfactual because it's not safe at all um, to use gene editing. But embryo selection is and will be, and that will be coming online very soon. And so I actually think that whatever people publicly pronounce, I think privately large numbers of people are going to want to use this, even if governments try to make it illegal. And as you know, when demand for a good is high and governments try to restrict the supply, they make it both more dangerous to supply the good and they reward the wealthy and well-connected who can find ways of accessing that good. That increases the very inequalities that some, some of the people listening to us will want to quash, will want to solve. And so by overregulating it, you're going to succeed and it will be your fault for exacerbating inequalities, not the fault of the people who are saying don't overregulate it, right? Um, because it's a predictable effect of, of these kinds of things. It happens with drugs, with the market for organs, um, et cetera. I guess we could add in something there, which is you could say the same for the market for prostitution. Making it illegal makes it both more dangerous and more likely that the wealthy and well-connected get away with it. On the other hand, it's also true that as with abortion and prostitution, having strict laws against them can lower demand a little bit. So it, it, it's not like it has no effect. Um, and maybe if you have strong enough aversions toward this market, you really want to stigmatize it. You essentially impose the death penalty for accessing the genetic data of your children. It probably would tamp down demand at least a little bit. So yeah, at a cost. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, have you ever read um, How Not to Be a Hypocrite by no, Adam Swift? Uh, it is uh, a kind of, so uh, he's a, 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 a ethicist I think at Oxford or maybe was at the time and it's a book about private schools and whether or not if you're a if, if you're a lefty who objects to private schools whether or not you can justify sending your own child to one or and various other things along that spectrum you've mentioned tutoring I used to I've had a lot of money thrown at me by parents who were desperate for me to tutor their children and um <clears throat> I agree I don't think it makes any difference <laughs> I was quite happy to pocket the money but I, uh, I I agree that I don't think tutoring Tutoring for something like the SAT or the 11 plus, I, I, you very quickly reach a ceiling with how much you can actually improve. That's right. It has a small effect, but it's true. Yeah. Um, so, so Adam Swift's kind of um, 
deals with all of these various hypotheticals and and and, and one of the thing he comes up with which I I I read this before becoming a parent myself and I found it slightly amusing was he was willing to read his child bedtime stories knowing that that is at least correlated with good educational outcomes because anyone can read their child bedtime stories but not anyone can send their child to private school because it's so expensive so he chose not to do anything that was not at least theoretically available to everyone um so I, I've heard, for instance, that he refused to read his child's personal statement for getting into for applying to university because he was he was like, well, I'm a you know, I'm an academic, so I have an unfair advantage in terms of reading a personal statement. And at the time, I thought that was a bit strange. And now since becoming a parent, I think it's psychopathic. <laughs> I think the idea of not doing stuff completely within your power to help your children to succeed now seems very strange to me. I do also recognize the fact that that instinct in parents has good and bad effects. If we allow parents to do absolutely anything they want in order to boost their child's performance in various things we care about, um, they'll do, do terribly immoral things sometimes, you know. Um, so we do we, we, we place limits on what parents can do intentionally. Um, I also agree with you, the idea that parents who are currently spending hundreds of thousands of pounds on private schooling are not going to spend that same kind of sum on polygenic screening, even if they might go around saying that they don't think that intelligence is heritable, <laughs> right? I think you're right. Their revealed preference will be that they will absolutely do it. And probably within a decade, this will be ubiquitous among the upper middle classes. That's right. I have a couple of things to say about that. I now remember Adam Smith. I don't think I've met him. I met his co-author, Harry Brighouse at Wisconsin. Also, he's at University of Wisconsin, but also via England. And I actually met him in Oxford. So he must have been at a conference. They have this book and this theory uh, that there are these advantages to reading to your kids. But it's, in my view, utterly false and backwards. It's like the so-called Beethoven effect in the United States. Some sociologists, blank slate sociologists, as we might say, who assume that genetics don't play a role. Everything's about socialization and oppression and these sorts of things. In the 1980s, notice that parents who played Beethoven um, while their children were, or while the baby was developing in the womb tended to have better life outcomes. And so what was the governor's response of that state? It's to subsidize Beethoven music for parents to access. And um, I think you know what's wrong with this argument. It turns out people who read to their children or play Beethoven are genetically quite different from people who are likely to be shooting up heroin and screaming at their kids or drinking while they're pregnant. It's not to say that, um, you know, these are 100% heritable activities or that sort of thing. But yeah, I mean, smarter people tend to have more books in their house and it's not the books causing their fetuses to have a higher IQ. It's the genes causing them to both have those books and have smarter children. So did yeah. you know that you can buy an, um, <laughs> intravaginal speakers no <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so that you can get the Beethoven even closer that's to your invasive. baby's ears wow. I know that's <laughs> it's a perfect. niche product but yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, that, yeah that meme has spread really far also to give a good example of of your case where you've got a kind of prisoner's dilemma for parents on the one hand you know mothering can be quite good um you know, ensuring they, they have access to music lessons and sports and academic activities. It does make a difference, especially in their personality formation. Um, you know, but it could also have these down, downsides, these bad effects where you get them involved in 
you know, arms races with other kids, like, you know, basically like he has to be the best musician. And so nothing but summer camp full of 10 hours a day of music and, and no time to relax and that sort of thing. That actually has collectively a really bad result and probably privately on the kid a bad result. Um, and an example that I was thinking of, as you mentioned that, is the celebrities in, in Hollywood about five, maybe 10 years ago now, who paid um, for access to SAT prep, actually not SAT prep, when their children took the SATs, they actually paid people to falsify their scores so that they could get into elite colleges. And that's a perfect example where it's, you know, it's individually rational. You might even say, this is what responsible parenting is, right? You give your kid every advantage, but it's clear from a social standpoint that that's bad. Um, we all kind of recognize that. And maybe this segues into some of the mutually destructive genetic arms races we could get into with uh, polygenic screening or eventually gene editing. And that is, I think, especially sexually selected traits like height in men and some physical features in women. Um, so the height in men example is probably the most obvious. Um, you know, it seems to me there's no reason for the extreme female preference, and it truly is an extreme one for, for tall men. Um, it's to the point where you know the data as well as I do, when people set filters on dating apps, you know, they end up filtering out more than half the population just by, just by filtering for height. I mean, that means if they really thought about it, which I don't think they do, that they care about height more than everything else, including like moral character, intelligence. That's, that's absolutely insane, right? But, you know, we, we do have these heuristics, these, these implicit devices whereby we select mates, and that's an easy one to select on. So you could imagine both men and women thinking, look, I don't really want a taller kid, but there, there's no health advantages. In fact, there are big disadvantages to being extremely tall. Um, but I recognize in the world we live in, given the Darwinian preferences that people exhibit, women will be more attracted to my tall male sons, and they're more likely to be taken seriously by their employees, by, you know, potential voters, right? As you probably know, presidential candidates or prime minister candidates, I know they're not directly voted on there, but indirectly they are. They tend to be considered more authoritative and wiser and smarter just by being taller or having a deeper voice. Now, this is irrational. It may have made some sense in some evolutionary past, other things equal, but, but now we're just like deep voice, uh, tall height maximizers, and that's insane. It's both collectively bad and individually costly. And so you can imagine regulations on this, and, and I think they'd be sensible ones. On the other hand, I'll just mention it in relation to that case, there may be some self-equilibration here whereby people also recognize, although it's good to be six foot two or six foot four if you're a man, um, for, for sports, for the mating market, for jobs, it's considered attractive. It's actually quite bad to be six nine or seven two. Yep, you're more likely to be a professional basketball player, but you're also more likely to die young, to exhibit coronary artery disease to have arthritis at a young age. So there may be cases in which we do have kind of arms races and you think, well, we need a regulation. Sometimes I'm going to agree with that. But in other cases, you actually don't need it because people understand that there are ceilings above which you're going to actually have costs. So, yeah. Are those heights, uh, are those disadvantages related to height, are they the result of the fact though that these are people who are genetic outliers? 
is it not possible that we could just select the human species to become progressively taller and the mean would move and then there wouldn't be these health problems associated with it? That is a brilliant question. I think the answer is yes. I think you're absolutely right about that. So I think it is entirely a function of that. And I mean, you can imagine, just look at other animal species that do just fine, at, you know, with gigantic bodies, you know, whales are the descendants of much smaller creatures. And now they just have bigger bodies and bigger brains. Now they're operating in the ocean, so they don't have the stresses of like gravity on the ground. But yeah, there, there's no reason to believe we can't be everyone on average a foot taller and be okay. I think, I think that's probably right. Although there's some limits. At some point, you should, you should actually interview Nick Lane, one of my favorite living scientists, who's written on this. So mitochondria, which evolved by accident, right? One bacterium parasitizing another, and then allowing the cellular division of labor, which, which primitive bacteria don't have, that actually made large size and complexity possible and death inevitable. But one of the things that he's argued is oxygen is essentially a toxin. It's pure poison. Um, we do need it to live, but it results in these free radicals that you need antioxidants, right, to, to fight. And we're in this like long-term fight against free radicals. And when you get more complexity and more size um, with the same levels of oxygen in the atmosphere, you actually probably get some difficulties um, converting that, that oxygen into healthy life outcomes. I'm not an evolutionary biologist. I just read these guys for fun. But um, I think you probably will hit some limits there with height. So, Okay, there are ceilings there. And, and, and also we're doing this very, very quickly. Yes. You know, whales reached their size over millennia. We're talking maybe decades, plausibly. Millions of years. And, and, and by the way, sorry to interrupt, but you mentioned a point earlier, which I didn't address, but I will now. You know, the, the word breeding or the word eugenics or whatever, some people think of this as, you know, a collective endeavor or a government-led endeavor just because they think of the worst abuses of those, those terms or concepts. However, um, and, and of course, you know, I don't want that either. I don't want a government telling you who you can mate with or what traits your children should have. Maybe there could be a law against, you know, deliberately breeding psychopaths or something. But, you know, what we don't want is a government with ex extreme power telling us who and how to breed. But the thing is, the only way to get the collective outcome you mentioned, like humanity moves toward a new norm where it's not just outliers being selected, but people within a healthy norm being selected who just happen to be taller. How do you get there without a, without a, a breeding program in the bad sense of the word of like a government led one? I don't know. In fact, I don't think you can. So that would be in some ways, although a hypothetically possible outcome, you're correct about that. I don't think it's the kind of thing any of us should welcome. Now, breeding or eugenics um, is also often used as it was by Galton and Darwin, who first mentioned artificial selection. Darwin constantly mentioned um, a kind of artificial selection that farmers engage in. They, they've done it for thousands of years by selectively breeding plants, you know, whether it's corn and rice and wheat or their domestic animals. And once Darwin and Galton had said, once the laws of heredity are known, you know, maybe in 50 years, they thought, or 100 years, and now we're sort of getting there, they thought we might selectively breed for traits. And interestingly enough, despite the kind of slander that the word eugenics gets, I think it's, it's incorrect to, to use it as a slander term. 
Galton is the one who coined that term and Darwin frequently used it and they meant individual level selection. So they meant it both as a descriptive and a normative term, but mainly descriptive. The idea that we would use the science of heredity once it was understood to influence our mating decisions and who and how many people we'd have children with if we had heritable diseases, for example. And so when they use words like breeding or eugenics, dysgenics, they do often mean either individual choices or collective outcomes, but both of them warned against giving governments um, or larger organizations the power to force people into these kinds of collective breeding decisions that happened, for example, during World War II under Hitler's regime. So I thought I'd address that too, because it's, you know, in the last five or 10 years, because of the euphemism treadmill, as you know, what leftists do is they accuse their opponents of being a thing, let's say racist. And then they overuse that word to the point that everyone rolls their eyes when they hear the word racist now, right? It's like, oh, that policy is racist. Uh, now I guess roads are racist in the United States, right? In the United States to build a freeway or a road in one place rather than another, it's racist. Okay, so now they start using another word like white supremacist or you know what fascist or whatever. And the same thing has gone with the word eugenics. It used to be a more neutral term, understanding that there are good or bad versions of it, even after World War II. Many people openly advocated eugenics. Crick, Watson, many famous scientists. And they just meant what Galton and Darwin meant. But then they also understood forced eugenics programs, state-sponsored coercive eugenics is very different. But now what's happened because leftists are always looking for new names to call their opponents, the word eugenics in the last five years has meant something like Nazi. And, and so, you know, I would urge listeners to resist for Orwellian reasons, the temptation to use the language of people who are trying to manipulate you. So they want to call it, they want to sort of say racism is everywhere by definition, or you're a white supremacist because you're white. You know, you have white privilege. It's just, it's a stain. It's a sin. That's just part of you. You can't get rid of it. Or you're a eugenicist. And by eugenicist, I just mean you're evil because you pay attention to like traits and the heritability scores of traits. My view is we should roll our eyes at them rather than at our comrades. And we should say, you can use words however you like, but I'm going to define my words carefully. And I'm not going to kowtow to your desire to sort of get me to change my mind by manipulating the language and the thoughts that come with language. There's a reason that the entirety of, of 1984 by Orwell is really about, about language and not just thought, right? That's why there's a dictionary of Newspeak and why he was really worried more than anything else that our thoughts would be manipulated by the language our opponents use. People don't use the word eugenics very accurately, right? And not just in, in the t sense of using it as a slur, but I, I don't think there's a very, even when we're talking about state-led coercive programs um, compared with market-driven programs, which is which is really what you're talking about, um, there are already loads of things the government that governments do to say who who can and who cannot reproduce or to discourage or encourage people. We don't let siblings reproduce, for instance, that's against the law for basically eugenic reasons, because we recognise that it causes genetic abnormalities. Um, I mean, one of the, I, I am loath to say that the market might be um, 
a savior, you know, in this instance. But I, I guess one of the ways in which a kind of, if we are going to have this technology, which it seems that we are, um, having it driven by market forces, one of the advantages of that is that people are going to have slightly different ideas about the difference between, you know, you know, you and dis, right? Like that, what are, what are good and bad traits to select for? And one of the things that um, I thought of when we were talking about this issue of height is that um, some of that is going to be sex specific. So people want their sons to be tall, but they don't necessarily want their daughters to be tall. Um, I had Rana Mitter on the podcast recently, who's a um, professor of modern politics in uh, China. And he was talking about the fact that female education is is very much a disadvantage for um, Chinese women who are looking for a spouse. Maybe people might prioritize intelligence in their sons more than in their daughters, depending on cultural context. Do you think that one of the consequences of this being made available is that you'd see greater sexual dimorphism over time? Yes, um, I do think that's the case. And I think it's really, again, difficult to control that. So, yeah, backing up a step, um, you know, so I used to teach in PPE programs and, and you in England, of course, know what that is. I was explain it. Oh, it's an old Oxford thing to, to Americans. But actually, it is new to you, too, in a way, because the way that we did PPE, the way that we do it in the United States, at places I've taught like Duke and Penn and Arizona, is we force students to take micro and macroeconomics, game theory, then read political philosophy, moral philosophy, then think, how does the state work using economic models to model political processes and so on. And so we make them really learn a bit of each of these disciplines. And, and I like that we do that. And this went into the book partly because I'm thinking about all these micro level choices that produce macro patterns that may be unanticipated, right? These, these kinds of processes, and you just identified a perfect one. But as with all of PPE, this way of thinking, the solution, too, is going to be imperfect. So if you just leave the market to go, we're going to get more sexual dimorphism and we're going to get borderline speciation. People are going to start moving in really radical different directions over many generations with respect to cognition, personality traits, which we'll be, we'll be able to select for very quickly, too. We can't do it quite yet, but maybe in five, ten years. And so we're going to get, I think, sexual dimorphism and then die, try, whatever the word is after that, morphism among kinds of people. But then you ask yourself, um, what do we do about that? And there's just trade-offs all the way down with different solutions. You either go with really massively coercive eugenics programs or a total free market or something in between. And I actually, in, in truth, even though you know, for a popular audience, I always have to say, oh, there's a difference between individual eugenics and state-sponsored coercive eugenics. You, of course, have hit on exactly the right point. We already do engage in state-sponsored coercive eugenics with laws against incest, for example, or with laws that predictably cause some groups of people to have more children than others, um, making it cheaper to buy a house, for example, or, or less cheap to buy a house. We'll systematically select in favor of the upper or lower middle class having more or fewer, fewer children. And we know this. And so in some weird way, that's a eugenics program. Um, so my real answer to this is actually don't just let the market go. Don't just have massive government control. You probably do want sensible regulations. And my view, and, and this is the kind of position I took in, toward the end of the book, is actually one thing that we might think about 
is the extent to which these collective action problems that we're talking about, um, including sexual dimorphism, this may actually inform the way we think we should live together in states. Because when you have small states with a little bit more homogeneity, homogeneity in values, it could be ethnicity, it could be religion, um, you know, let's say a small Jewish state like Israel, a small Christian state like, well, I guess, you know, what England used to be, something like that, Ireland, small Catholic state. You know, these are the conditions under which when governments act, there tends to be more social trust. People tend to, you can monitor the government more easily with a few million people who mostly agree on basic issues. But when you have a large state like the United States, where it's just getting bigger and more diverse every year, what you get is more ethnic and religious infighting, lower social trust, more corruption. And then you ask yourself, do you trust a government like that to regulate this kind of technology in a fair and socially beneficial way? And my answer is no. But would I trust Israel or Singapore? Actually, maybe. I probably would. Um, and so I think one of the things that really radical technologies like this are going to cause us to do is rethink the moral basis of the way we live together under states. And it's long overdue. We've had this reign of, let's say, 200 years of liberalism, which we really inherit from the English tradition, trans, you know, sort of um, changed in th via the United States Revolution, then the French Revolution, and then it just goes from, from there to the world. We've got these, these liberal traditions and all of us are kind of questioning these now. And I think part of what we should be questioning is not just the basis of sovereignty. Is democracy or monarchy a good thing and so on? Those are worth asking. But it's like, what does an optimal state look like? Is it more like a million people or a billion people? And what kinds and levels of homogeneity should we have? We're taught this mantra that diversity is our strength. And it's precisely because everyone who says that knows it's a lie. Um, of course, there are some kinds of diversity that are good, intellectual diversity and so on, when you're solving a problem. But the idea that more religious diversity is good for social welfare or more ethnic diversity is just always better, that's obviously false and insane, which is why we're expected to believe it. But when the serious thinkers come to the table, they're going to need to rethink these things and say, look, if we want to solve some of these big global collective action problems, Maybe the best way to do it is not bigger, more diverse states or a global government, but rather smaller, less diverse states with higher levels of social trust. Why? Because they're more efficacious and there's more reason to think that the governments that emerge in those conditions will tend to be more trustworthy. I've, I find this prospect of sort of astonishing level of genetic diversity di divergence even producing speciation frankly terrifying and I'm, my last question in the main part of the show which is um, an enormous question so I'm sorry but <laughs> the you what you refer to as status quo bias could otherwise be described as Chesterton's fence right and as a and as a Burkean conservative to my core um, probably rooted in my own neuroticism and risk aversion <laughs> I I find that there's an enormous amount of wisdom in that to me. And I think often of, I think it's Nick Bostrom's idea of the black ball that you, every time you create a new technology, you reach into this bag and you pull it out and you don't know what, you basically don't know what the consequences are going to be. And eventually we, we do this enough times and with 
sufficiently radical kinds of technology, you will eventually pull out the black ball and it will be the ball that basically destroys humanity. That is a complete existential risk. What are the chances do you think that genetic enhancement is the black ball, will prove to be the black ball, possibly not in the polygenic screening form, but in the more extreme forms like CRISPR? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I have, oof, it's so complex, the answer. So first of all, when I wrote the book, I was working upstairs with Nick Bostrom and had many discussions with him about this topic and, of course, artificial intelligence, which is his obsession now. And that paper, I remember, was still under review. I don't know if it's published since, but that is the, the vulnerable worlds hypothesis paper um, that you alluded to. Well, he has another one in which it's called the reversal test that is a good complementary read. I'd recommend both to your audience. These are two of the greatest papers he's ever written. So one, one is on this, this, you know, this pot that has a bunch of balls. And eventually, you know, you're, if you keep pulling balls out, there's one black ball in there, you're going to hit the black ball. The other, the reversal test is this idea that, and he, he mentioned it in the context of genetic selection for cognitive traits. If you were worried about selecting in favor of positive enhancement for like, let's say a bit higher IQ or lower disease risk, would you be in favor of selecting deliberately for a lower IQ or for higher disease risks, right? If you've got a set of embryos and he basically, he calls it the reversal test because of that thought experiment I just went through. And it's like a hundred percent of people would never select in favor of lower intelligence um, among their embryos or lower disease burdens. But what that suggests is they have this heuristic that's leading them to think that the average of what we have now is perfect or best or whatever. And Bostrom doesn't believe it, and I don't either. For Darwinian reasons, it, it, it's obviously false. So the real question is, is if we if we take Bostrom phase one, the reversal test, and we say, okay, therefore... We do have reasons to select in favor of some of these traits that seem to be socially beneficial and individually beneficial, uh, cognition, personality traits, lower disease burden. Um, okay, we have good reasons to do that, but is the collective upshot over enough years and over enough iterations such that it gets us into this other problem that Bostrom mentions, namely um, drawing the black ball? I think the answer is yes but it could be a billion years before we get there, or it could be many millions. And as always, again, PPE American style, as, as I do, you know, economists like to ask compared to what and at what cost, right? And well, compared to what, your audience should think everyone, whenever I give these kinds of interviews or write something on the topic, the first comment is always about Gattaca. And there's never a comment about idiocracy or about, a much more difficult to quantify. And I think, you know, that's a bigger risk than Gattaca, right? It's not going to be alphas and betas, and there's exactly two genetic types. No, there's going to be millions of genetic types, right? Divergence in all directions, the opposite of Gattaca. But if we shut it all down, which I don't think we can do anyway, what we'd get is idiocracy, not Gattaca. And it's unclear to me whether idiocracy is preferable. And this is partly because, well, first of all, we have this pattern, Darwin and Galton both saw it even, even in the 1850s and 60s, um, that as you get smarter, more educated people with more wealth, they tend to have fewer children. And at the opposite end of the spectrum, there tends to be more. People who are less well-regulated with their emotions have less self-control and so on, right, are going to have more children and already are. 
then people have more self-control and so on. And moreover, there's a final problem. And um, there are many good papers on this. It's a problem Herman Muller, a Nobel laureate, first discovered with his um, experiments on x-rays after the, the bomb was dropped in World War II. And that is we have an accumulating uh, mutation, a set of mutations that accumulate over our lifetimes. And as we get older, of course, older people tend to have more uh, mutation accumulation than younger ones that they pass along to their children. But across generations, we're going to have more and more genetic mutation accumulation because of medical care, because of social welfare programs, and so on. And so putting all of those together, we actually get a really nice, easy to read paper that, that your listeners can check out. It's only two pages long on edge.org by John Tooby, the evolutionary biologist. And it's called The Race Between Genetic Meltdown and Germline Gene Editing. And if we don't like germline gene editing, we could just do the same through embryo selection. And the idea is mutations are accumulating across generations in ways that doesn't happen in nature. So in nature, you get purifying selection, whereby people with high genetic loads or mutation loads are basically just killed. But now what do we do? We save them, as Darwin said, through social welfare programs, through medical care as children. Maybe you're predisposed to childhood cancer. Well, now you get treated for that childhood cancer, as you should. I support it. Darwin supported it. But you're more likely to live to adulthood and pass along those genes that predispose toward childhood cancer. And the longer this goes on with civilization, the more true that has to be. This is a question of math and biology, not of what we want to believe. So again, when we talk about the fear of eventually drawing the black ball that extinguishes or dramatically harms if it doesn't extinguish humanity, there are risks to doing genetic enhancement I think there are bigger risks to not doing it, um, or at the very least, you have to consider those risks of not doing it. Ask the the, the economics question compared to what. Mm. Or the other option we go back to before the first demographic transition and have a high mortality society, but I don't think right. we want that either. So not yeah, kills fifty percent of all Europeans in excruciating, agonizing deaths. Yeah. Exactly. And half of all children before they turn fifteen in basically every society before yes, the twentieth exactly. century. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. All right, on that cheery note, <laughs> in the in the uh, uh paid subscribers hang around because we're gonna um talk further about uh I think we should dig into some of the particular traits that we're talking about selecting for, because we talked quite a lot about height and, and, and intelligence and so on, but there are other things that are really, really interesting, which I want to talk about things like things like health, things like um, empathy. Yeah. yeah. Should we, should we be maximizing the empathy of humanity? Actually, probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Um, for everyone else, where can people find more of your work and, and learn more about this subject? I posted all on my homepage um, and I made a deal with Routledge when I published the book after two years, it'd be open access. So um, yeah, we can post the open access version of the book. Sure. And um, remind everyone of the title. I'll put it in the bio as well. Uh, it's uh, Creating Future People, The Ethics of Genetic Enhancement. And homepage is just jonathan-anomaly.com. So easy to find. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Cheers. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for watching that episode of Maiden Mother Matriarch and for all of your support. It means an enormous amount for the growth of the show. 
If you want to hear bonus content, an extra 20, 30 minutes of conversation with the guest, maybe a little bit more personal, a little bit less filtered, then you can go to my Substack at louiseperry.substack.com where you can sign up for extended episodes and also bonus episodes. And you can also access our chat community. You can also support the show by subscribing on YouTube or subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts is also really great for encouraging other people to give the show a try. Please also spread the word, tell people that you know who you think might like it to give it to give it a shot. Um, the word of mouth effect is really valuable, so we'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening, watching and supporting what we're doing.